you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Hey, what's up? I'm Marcos Trinidad, and this is Human Nature. Every week, we'll get out into the nature of your neighborhood with the help of people who see the world a little differently. Today, we're sharing a gem from our friends at Latino USA. We bring you the story of indigenous environmental scientist, Jessica Hernandez. She recently published her first book, Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. She's gonna tell us about her experiences in the world of a mostly white academia, the dismissal and appropriation of indigenous knowledge, and how listening to indigenous communities can actually save us from climate change. We should dismantle the fact that indigenous peoples are seen as research subjects and areas of expertise rather than the scientists and experts themselves. From Futuro Media and PRX, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, Jessica Hernandez on why we need indigenous environmental science. For Jessica Hernandez, becoming an environmental scientist seemed like the most natural thing in the world. She had grown up learning about animals and plants from her grandmother in Oaxaca, in southern Mexico. She loved going fishing with her father, where she always seemed to learn something new. Jessica felt that she already had so much to share with other people who were interested in the environment. But when she started studying marine science, things weren't so simple all of a sudden. As an indigenous immigrant woman at a university in the United States, the knowledge she brought to the classroom was mocked or dismissed. Her professors had no interest in what she, and by extension her family and her community, had to say. Still, Jessica knew that she belonged any place where the environment was being discussed, not just for her love of nature, but because she had seen how being shut out of the conversation had been so harmful to her Zapotec and Maya Chorti communities. So she finished her degree, but didn't stop there. She got a master's and then a PhD in environmental and forestry sciences. She learned the formulas and specialized terms used in academia And she confirmed what she had always known, that what her grandmother and father had taught her was also a form of science. Now Jessica has collected her family's stories, historical accounts, and other case studies in the book Fresh Banana Leaves, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. She hopes it's going to change the way we think about environmental science. In her own words, Here's the story of Dr. Jessica Hernandez. My name is Jessica Hernandez, and I'm from the Maya Chorti and Zapotec nations of El Salvador and Oaxaca, Mexico. 
I'm an indigenous environmental scientist. I currently hold a position at the University of Washington, Bato, where I teach Introduction to Climate Science. I also conduct research on environmental physics of climate science. And I wrote a book entitled Fresh Banana Leaves Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. One of my fondest memories is just being able to go visit my grandmother in Oaxaca, Mexico. And she just taught me a lot about our environments. She liked to go walking when she was able to walk. And she would just teach me about the landscape, the mangoes, and also about the animals. My dad loved fishing and because he was a fisherman. That's how he was able to sustain his family in El Salvador because he was the eldest and he used to fish. And I think that I always thought my dad was like really smart because like if we went fishing. He didn't need a rod, right? Like he could make his own rod out of the materials that he could find. He could make fish nets also. And I always thought that that was really cool. And I noticed that when I was like in elementary school, my dad was learning how to read with me. And that always made me question like, oh, my dad is learning? Like, what does that mean? But my dad sharing that journey with me as I was learning how to read kind of inspired me to be like, oh, if my dad is like doing this with me, maybe I should, you know, look into school. And I think that that's what motivated me to love education because my parents had been denied education and they instilled in me like, oh, you know, if you can get education, go for it. Being introduced to the environment from the lens of my grandmother and my father, it kind of fostered that interest in me to want to learn more about our environment. I always noticed how my communities and my relatives back in my ancestral lands were always dismissed, right? Like, if they wanted to advocate for something in the environment, they would be like, oh, esos indios no saben, like, they don't know anything, they're, you know, ignorant, like, what are they talking about? And I think that that's something that my grandmother stealed in me because she was like, oh, you have the opportunity to pursue education even my parents, right? Like my dad didn't get any Western education, right? Because he was busy as a child trying to support his family after his father passed away. So he never stepped foot in a classroom. And I guess it would be my naiveness because I thought, you know, like, oh, I could bring in my family's teachings into the curriculum. I could bring it to the professors. They're going to really accept it. But when I went into the classrooms, oftentimes, you know, I was ridiculed by professors because they would be like, oh, you need to cite this. You know, you need to go towards peer review articles or, you know, is this Jessica's theory? Where is this information coming from? When I would share testimonies or lived experiences that will hint towards the topic we were discussing, but because it wasn't published or it didn't have any scientific credibility, it was like dismissed and oftentimes ridiculed by my professors, right? Even as a graduate student, I had to sit in classrooms while they were laughing. Like I had just like said a joke or something and I was like, okay. <laughs> but that just shows you how professors, you know, especially white Scientists can be dismissive towards indigenous peoples, right? And that was me, somebody who had privilege to be in that classes. So I could just imagine how they would treat our communities if they went to our communities and they would share all these stories as well, right? They'll probably laugh as well. To see how they were very dismissive kind of like made me understand that, you know, what I had envisioned environmental sciences to be as a field wasn't necessarily what... It was going to be the sciences have the lowest diverse populations of students and even professors. I don't recall uh, 
indigenous professor throughout my undergraduate. So even in my graduate degree, like if I wanted to work with an indigenous professor, I had to go to like the Department of American Indian Studies or the Department of Ethnic Studies, but it wasn't necessarily within the College of the Environment or the Departments of the Environments. But my grandmother always told me like, if you can learn how the colonizers, so you know, the gringos speak, you can help us advocate for our environments, right? Because now, like, they're not going to dismiss our way of knowing because we can use that Western terminology. Personally, I prefer to use the term indigenous science as opposed to traditional ecological knowledge because oftentimes I think that traditional ecological knowledge has this connotation that it's knowledge that no longer exists or that it's kind of like traditional in the sense that it belongs in a museum as opposed to it's alive and has adapted over the years. Our knowledge systems are a form of science. If anything, they're like the the longest living science on planet Earth because it has been kind of created or passed down through generations. It has also adapted as our environments adapted because, you know, our indigenous science that probably our great-grandparents had is not the same that, you know, we have because our environments have drastically changed because of climate change, urbanization, and everything that colonialism introduced to our lands. And I think that one of my biggest push is that Indigenous peoples are scientists and that oftentimes we're told because we live in under this de-settler frameworks that we have to obtain degrees for our knowledge to be validated. But, you know, all of Indigenous peoples who have that knowledge to steward their lands, to co-manage their resources with their entire community, tribes, or pueblos, hold on to that science that is the foundation of our existence and resistance. They might not be peer-reviewed or published as much as, you know, the Western sciences, but it holds as much credibility as the Western sciences do. We'll hear more after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. I was always interested in trying to write a book that voiced my father's story, especially his story as a child soldier who fought in the Civil War. And I think that once I was able to get him to sit down and tell me his whole story, it kind of like sparked an interest for me to write it. I wanted to 
be able to share his story, but I also wanted to be able to tie in the stories of my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, my relatives, my community members, and other people that I'm in community with so that we can amplify how indigenous rights, even if we're talking about immigration rights, are all interconnected to our environment. Through the book, I weave different scenarios or case studies of communities who have led that movement. And hopefully that also shows people and the readers that, you know, it is something that they can support instead of co-opting or stealing. Because that also tends to happen right in the Western framework where people are like, oh, that's a great idea. Let me go steal it and name it something else and then pretend I'm the founder when it's like indigenous knowledges that were shared to certain people. And then they take that ownership. One of the examples that I can give is permaculture. So permaculture is this like holistic way of doing agriculture where you're not necessarily putting much labor into the agricultural system, but the agricultural system is sustaining itself. And when you look at the history of permaculture, it was founded, you know, and I quote that founded by a white man who went to Australia and learned from some Aborigine communities And permaculture then became this like really expensive certificate that you can get. That's one of the critiques that I make in the book on how we should dismantle the fact that indigenous peoples are seen as research subjects and areas of expertise rather than the scientists and experts themselves, even without degrees. There's a lot of research articles written about the Zapotec community, but when I have asked people in my community, oh, did you know this and that, you know, that was written about our community, they're like, oh, I had never heard that. So that shows you how many of the times indigenous peoples are used as the research subjects and not their research experts. I'm really careful with like not sharing any medicinal remedies or sacred knowledge because it's kind of hard, right? Because you don't know who to trust. And I think that being exposed to all these stories of co-optation or or knowledge theft made me a little bit more guarded on the knowledge I was shared. So I feel like I always walked a fine line of sharing my Indigenous knowledge with other people because, you know, it can either be co-opted, stolen, or also invalidated or dismissed. What I want readers to take away from this book is to learn more about the indigenous movements that are happening across the Americas, because oftentimes we fail to recognize how our certain identities contribute to settler colonialism back in Latin America. In the United States, we focus more on being oppressed because we are oppressed as people of color. But when we go back to Latin America, it's Afro-Indigenous, Black and Indigenous peoples who are oppressed by, you know, some of us. And I think that hopefully that brings a new perspective to the whole narrative of the oppressed and the oppressor and how we can work together to undo that. One of the things that I talk about in the book is that conservation is a Western construct because in our languages, like if I were to try to translate conservation to the Zapotec language or the Maya Chorti language or other languages that many indigenous people speak, there is no word that directly translates to conservation. Most of the words that kind of tie or are interconnected to conservation focus more on protection, like protecting our environment. Most of the words in our languages hint towards healing rather than, you know, like conserving is not only that it cannot be directly translated to our languages, but sometimes it comes in conflict with a way of life. 
And oftentimes, in the name of conservation, there is this oppression used against Indigenous peoples, especially when it comes to their inherited right to have access to certain natural resources. And we see that in national parks. When national parks were created, it was under this framework to conserve the natural, pristine wilderness. When in reality, there was a lot of Indigenous communities who lived in those lands that are now national parks that were exploited, oppressed, and kind of removed from their ancestral lands. And I think that it kind of shows the nuances that need to be discussed in the national park system because a lot of these monuments have names of violent people that perpetrated that violence against indigenous communities that were violently ripped off or removed from their lands. More after the break. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. So the project that I conducted for my dissertation was to indigenize restoration in Discovery Park located in Seattle, Washington. It's the largest urban park in the state of Washington. And that's an interesting park because it has a, a really beautiful indigenous history behind it. I decided to use my PhD to try to restore and heal some of those 20 acres of land. But in that way, what I decided to do was to amplify and center the indigenous ways of healing our earth. And one of the teachings that our elders were able to, you know, teach us to practice was that under Western conservation, invasive species, they're like known as pests or weeds. But for indigenous communities, we should see them as displaced relatives because there are someone's relatives that have been displaced, like many of us have I got in a lot of fights with the Seattle Parks and Recreation Department because, you know, even the way that they wanted us to take care of the weeds was different than the way we were told to take care of the weeds by our elders. Because, you know, for them, it's like their weeds, they just have to be removed versus, you know, us. We will do prayers and we will ask for their permission to leave, you know, the land so that native species can come back in. So it was a lot of like, I wouldn't say like, really bad conflict, but a lot of like fights with Seattle Parks because of the way that we practice restoration wasn't aligned to their, you know, rule book. One of the interesting metaphors that I use in the book is that banana trees are invasive to Central America, yet we have embraced them as our relatives, right? And I think that that's a metaphor that I use for my lived experiences and the lived experiences of many displaced indigenous peoples that as banana trees, 
We have also been displaced from our ancestral lands, yet we adapt to our environments. And in this case, you know, sometimes we're welcome into those environments. Like in the case of banana trees, like, you know, in Central America, they have been used in our traditional foods to make our tamales, platanos. We, you know, we fry them, yet they're displaced relatives, right? They're not native species. They come from Southeast Asia, but they were introduced And I think like banana trees displace indigenous peoples, we are forced to adapt to our new environments. And hopefully, you know, for some of us, we're working to become welcome into those new environments. One of the teachings that my grandma always told me was that anywhere I walked that wasn't my land, I was an unwelcome guest, right? Because it was like we're going into other people's homes. And those other people are the indigenous peoples whose lands we're walking on. And I think that one of the things that she always told me to think about was how do you become a welcome guest, right? Because I have to still navigate that as a displaced indigenous woman. And the same way that I want people to form those relationships with my communities once they're in Oaxaca. One of the beauties of being an Indigenous instructor, especially in the college setting, is that I can support other Indigenous students. I want to inspire students to find that sense of belonging because, like, I always crave to have an Indigenous professor teaching me about the environmental sciences, but I never got that. In a way, sometimes I question, like, oh, do I really want to become a professor, go for tenure? But then I think about my younger self and... I think about that 18-year-old who craved that Indigenous professor that she could approach after class and talk to them, right? And I think that being an Indigenous instructor now kind of allows me to cater to those students. Hey, it's Marcos Trinidad. A special thanks to Latino USA for bringing us Dr. Hernandez's story. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Human Nature. See ya. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com events. See you there.